Thank you for listening to Dream 10X Radio, where we interview people attempting to live extraordinary lives. Our twofold purpose is to both direct and inspire people bold enough to do the same. Dream 10X. Face your fears. Today we have the great pleasure of talking with Will and Al Carell, the owners of Busky Cider in Richmond, Virginia. Like most small businesses around the world at this time, Busky Cider has felt the impacts of COVID-19 and has taken action accordingly in order to keep their burgeoning business alive. One of the cool things I really liked learning from them is how Benjamin Franklin influenced the naming of their company. That was and pretty cool. We'll hear more about that in this episode eight of the Dream 10X podcast. Great to have you on. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having us. Where are you guys right now? Yeah, we're down in our uh, condo in downtown Richmond, a couple blocks from the Capitol. And, uh, during COVID, we've been working remote from here a lot as we try to, um, you know, deal, deal with uh, keeping our team respectfully distanced and things like that, not having access to coffee shops and co-working spaces and lots of those places, haunts of entrepreneurs, so uh-huh. spending more time working from home than usual. But you have a physical location, right? Yeah, so over in Scott's Edition, uh, which is uh, near the intersection of the uh, 95 and 64 interstate, there's a neighborhood with a bunch of craft breweries and cideries and um, CrossFit gyms and office spaces and apartments. And um, we were lucky enough to get to be an early mover in that neighborhood. That's really uh, just turned into one of the one of the coolest neighborhoods in the region. And uh, it's a couple miles from where we live. Right now, are people still coming to your store or? Yeah, so we, we are a manufacturing facility and then also have uh, a tasting room that is a, a very significant piece of our business. So there's you know, a couple of distinct pieces. So uh, we've been producing the entire time and, um, you know, kept our team has been working really hard making cider and adjusting to, um, you know, the, the shift in consumer trends and how we get our product to market. Uh, the taster room was um, com- almost completely closed for the first uh, couple months of COVID, just like everywhere it was. And it's slowly reopened with a lot less tables and no bar and, you know, a lot of new, uh, new and improved cleaning protocols and things like that. But it's uh, continued to be a, you know, an, an exciting place for people to go and uh, get to experience something different and get out of their houses in a responsible way. Yeah, the irony of that, uh, of, of you closing down, was how we found out about you. You want to tell your story? I do. So uh, we, uh, my girlfriend and I and love cider. And yeah, obviously in COVID, you can't go to the grocery store. Nobody is delivering. What the heck are we going to do? And we were Googling everything and she found you and emailed it to me we immediately made orders and voila here we are um so rva tart cherry and i think we did the blueberry pancake and we fell in love that's awesome (laughs) Uh, i guess march is when kind of this whole covid thing happened for us and we didn't go out we didn't venture out to Mm -hmm. grocery store i guess for two to three months and so cindy was trying to source you know everything from her cider to to fish and meat and everything uh, online. And so we did that pretty much exclusively for the first three months there, March, April, May-ish. Yeah. How did you guys make the decision to, to pivot and switch to delivery? So COVID just started happening and um, the uh, the restaurant started closing and uh, sort of the breweries and we're like, okay, so we've lost our brick and mortar spot. What do we do in the meantime? So within a couple of days, um, our, uh, my, my brother and sister-in-law, uh, they made this amazing Shopify site for us. So we changed our website completely and we started selling online. Wow. And um, we started with just delivering in Richmond and that went so well that we expanded it to Hampton Roads. And then we're like, well, obviously we just launched Nova for distribution. So we need to go up there and service, service our customers up there. So uh, yeah, it just kind of boomed. That's incredible. And you guys are actually shipping now too, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, we're shipping to I think it's 40 states now. Um, we just added California, so that's incredible. We're really my girlfriend in Maryland has been yeah. so disappointed. I had to, I have to buy the blueberry pancake and then drive it up to her. So I will let her know now that oh, you actually it. shipped to to Maryland as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, blueberry pancake. Unfortunately, we don't have it in cans. Um, and sending crawlers, you know, they'll probably make it, but we're we've got this. Um, 
uh, we've got like a specific system so that they don't burst on the way there or anything like that. But maybe you guys can tag team it up there. <laughs> <laughs> that works. Please tell us more about the name Busky Cider, where that came from. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, Busky's a word that, that, that excuse me, <laughs> Busky's a word that Ben Franklin, um, he wrote in a letter back in the day, uh, back during colonial times when cider was the most popular beverage. So there's this long laundry list to one of his friends that was basically like, what, what's the slang that people are saying in the taverns at the time while they're drinking cider? And one of the words was busky. <laughs> so we decided to pick that name and use it for the cidery. So yeah, we, um, and the reason behind our logo is it's kind of like a colonial era guy. Um, and, uh, you know, we didn't want cider to take it or cider to be so, our cider to be so serious. It just needed to, um, I don't know, instead of being in a bottle, it's in a six pack or a four pack and uh, it's just more relaxed and enjoyable. So we um, decided what's the what's the funniest, craziest thing you can come up with? Of course, you just put a crazy hat on your logo. <laughs> so that's the reason behind the apple hat. Silly apple hat. I love it. So. <laughs> what does <laughs> Sorry, say again. What does busky mean though? What, were, what is it slang for? So actually, it was undefined. Huh. Undefined. So we don't know exactly what it meant. We're guessing maybe somebody's last name was Busky who really enjoyed cider, you know, <laughs> something like that. Most of, the, most, so of the words on the list, <laughs> most of the words on the list were some form of basically just describing someone's inebriation. So we say it means tipsy. Um, <laughs> but it's because there are a bunch of things like, you know, he chased his mule, he kicked the bucket, he, you know, met Aunt Sally, it's just like all the, and then like a bunch of people's names and stuff. It's just a silly list. And uh, we wanted to reference the his, history of cider without, uh, without making ourselves have to be super serious, like she said. So, um, yeah, so it, I mean, it was fun because it didn't, because it didn't mean anything, we got to build a brand behind it. And ultimately, like our customers have gotten to choose what it means in a lot of contexts. <laughs> and that's, that's fun to see when they use the word differently than we would. And uh, yeah, so there's, you know, there's history without any baggage, which is uh, refreshing. Uh, and now busky officially means cider. Yeah. <laughs> um, get busky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I also just to get a, I get a huge kick out of, I mean, when we joke about like opening another brand or something I'm like, oh, uh, we should uh, call a call our product another. So when someone says, I'll have another, they're automatically running our product. <laughs> that's that's brilliant. Yeah, so, that's, oh yeah. But there's the, uh, there is the, uh, you know, the get busky is like actually people saying like, oh, like we should get one. And that's, uh, which is kind of fun. So there's yeah, just a little bit of playfulness there. Yeah. Before we go any further, I'm going to crack open a can of busky watermelon rosemary, which I discovered through Cindy. Ooh. I really enjoy this one. Good call. Yeah. How how do you guys make this stuff? Yeah, so the, the basics of cider making is that, um, you know, all alcohol uh, starts with some sort of a fermentable sugar. And, um, you know, for something like beer, that's very complicated of boiling it out of grains and stuff. Ours is a very natural agriculture-based product. So we start with our base is uh, apple juice. And for us, that's Virginia apples. Uh, so we start off with apple juice and then the yeast eats the sugars and converts that into alcohol and also a variety of flavors and aromas. Um, so the base of all of our ciders is going to be apples. And then uh, when you have something fun like the watermelon rosemary, we are adding in watermelon um, and watermelon after fermentation. And then we are um, running it over rosemary. Um, and we, we run it over rosemary for a period of time uh, until it's dialed into the character we're looking for. And that's, uh, and then it is filtered with a cross flow filter. So that's why the product is so clear. Mm. And it's a really gent it's a really gentle, um, very expensive filtration process. That is, uh, something we're, you know, fortunate to have been able to grow into over the years. And then, uh, we put it into a bright tank, which is a tank that looks similar to a fermenter, but holds pressure. And we, uh, dissolve carbon dioxide into the product and that's the bubbles that make it so refreshing. And then in your case, it's in a can. So the uh, we have a mobile canning company come in and we fill the cans. And uh, we'll do about, with something like the watermelon rosemary, we'll do somewhere between like 15 and 20,000 cans, um, usually for a batch, which is on our on the larger size for us. And our smallest runs might be a little over a thousand cans. 
Very interesting. So there's physical watermelon that goes into the ingredients then, not just flavor. Yes. That's really cool. It is cool. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the whole the whole like natural flavor thing usually means not natural. And for us, we are using, um, I guess, you know, real fruit and real ingredients. Um, you know, there's no, uh, there's really, we don't have anything that we use that is artificial. It's just, uh, you know, an absurd amount of apples and an absurd amount of watermelons and a pretty reasonable amount of rosemary. I mean, we, uh, with the uh, peach tea cider we make, um, we accidentally bought out the entire harvest of white tea from the state of Virginia and had oh, to yeah. import more from France because it's just grown every year. So we end up buying, we end, we end up buying things in um, substantial quantities. For our larger batches and so mobile canning what what does that mean there's another company that just like pulls up with a bunch of cans and you somehow get it in the can so they yeah they pull up with the apparatus that fills the cans and seams them and uh yeah but basically the uh you have the cans come off of the pallet and you know get rinsed and then um, they get filled they get filled with co2 and then filled with cider and then a lid gets dropped on top and it gets spun and seamed on top Oh. And uh, and it's kind of reminiscent of like an undercounter can opener, but it's the opposite. It's seeming it. What a cool process. How did you guys even get into cider in the first place? Can you just, like take us back to the beginning of your journey and how you met and your history and how cider just became such a huge part of your life? We are both from Franklin uh, in the Tidewater area of Virginia. And um, our both of our dads and uh, Will's mom worked for uh, Union Camp, a small paper mill that was like the center of the town. Hmm. And um, we, uh, so when the mill got bought, um, all of, we both had to move away. And so Will moved to Memphis and I moved to Cincinnati. And um, then as time passed, Will went to Hampton City. He came back to Virginia for college. And then I was living in DC for a job. And then I was kind of like networking with my with my Franklin friends, um, saying, "Hey, uh, does anybody know anyone in Richmond? Um, you know, DC's been fun, but like maybe maybe Richmond would be fun too." So um, I, uh, I I just started talking to them, and uh, they're like, "Yeah, you know, I, I how about Will? He's he's got a place in Richmond." And Will's like, "Yeah, sure, I'll totally um, you know." let you come and visit Richmond and I'll show you around. And he's a great tour guide. And uh, yeah, so then he started coming up to DC to visit me. And then I came back down to Richmond and then ultimately moved to Richmond as the cidery was opening. I think I saw on LinkedIn that you went to school out of state. I, I did. Uh, well, so I went to the University of Missouri. I was an exchange student in Spain and moved to Missouri for college, then um, DC for a job and then Richmond. Wow. Why'd you come back from Spain? Well, you know, the, that whole visa process, I tell you what. <laughs> um, Spain, Spain was really nice, but um, I, I just really appreciate um, really good hard work. Like, I think that Americans have done a really good job at saying, like, um, I've got my sights on that thing. I want that thing. I'm going to do what it takes to get it. Hmm. And I really enjoyed how the Spaniards, like, lived every day and um you know they live a really full life but i i miss that kind of hard-working american spirit so i had to come back but i do miss it <laughs> that's really interesting huh. yeah while i was over there i worked for a um a university um in their international relations office so basically for study abroad but incoming students <laughs> so um I, which happened to be the um, the office that I was working with when I was trying to be an exchange student at the college. And it took a really long time for the process and everything. But by the time I was there, I was like, okay, we need to get this dialed in. And instead of it being like a month's process, it was within a couple of days. So it was great. That's cool. <laughs> when you were in Spain, you really cherish the hardworking American, I guess, kind of ethic. And I, I'm curious... Uh, mm -hmm. what did you want to work for? What, what was it that you wanted to, to come back and work for? Man. <laughs> well, so, so I got my, um, my bachelor's degrees in linguistics and international studies. And then I got my master's degree in teaching English to speakers of other languages. 
not necessarily thinking what I wanted to do after this. I had some ideas, but it was more passion driven. Mm. So I think, I think I was looking for a place that I could believe in a, uh, like a boss or in this case, a partnership that I could just sink my teeth into. I'm very loyal and I want someone that I can trust and say, okay, let's do this. Let's, let's, do everything like let's crush it so I really I even though I never ever expected to work in alcohol I love that I can just um, be myself bring the best things about me and the worst things about me to work and and it just be amazing mm-hmm. everybody just I don't know. It's amazing how supportive our customers are of us and how supportive our team is of us and vice versa. And um, I couldn't imagine a better career. I love it. Awesome. So mine is, yeah, so my entrepreneurial journey starts a a little earlier and that was always my goal. So, I mean, I was, some of my earliest memories as a child was opening businesses and um, opening businesses and like trying to do creative projects and trying to sell things and trying to collaborate with people. So, you know, I, I ran a small blueberry business where we would go to the, <clears throat> I'd pay my friends to pick blueberries and I'd peddle them around the neighborhood. And, uh, you know, I opened a fence building company in high school and opened a nonprofit in college and a variety of other organizations. Um, so it was somewhat inevitable, I think, that I was going to end up being an entrepreneur. And um, that was a lot of what I focused on in college. So then my senior year, I ended up winning an, a competition called Start Peninsula. And that's uh, Start Exclamation Point Peninsula uh, that is hosted around Hampton Roads. And my school sent me to go compete in this competition. And I ended up being one of the winners. Um, got a $10,000 grant, which is certainly not enough to open a cidery, but it is um, it is enough to it is enough to really test your idea and actually use some good equipment and start sourcing juice and things like that. So uh, won that competition and decided coming out of college that's what I was going to focus on, and then spent um, almost three years after college getting getting Busky open and ultimately you know the uh, the pitch was good and um, I was onto something but I also had no idea how much I didn't know and how hard it would be to open a manufacturing facility that also has a a robust brand and customer experience and distribution network. And, um, you know, as a 22 year old, I, um, I bit off a lot and it took a few years to chew it. And then, uh, you know, it's still a learning process. I, I think you, if you guys interview a lot of entrepreneurs, I doubt anyone ever says that they don't have to continue learning and evolving. And that's a, that's a constant process. And just when you think that maybe you're getting it right, all of a sudden there's a, you know, the world flips upside down and you have, um, have to figure it out again, but that's also, where the entrepreneurial focus and spirit, I think, is is really useful is that it uh, it, it feels natural to innovate and change paths. And um, so Elle was not initially involved um, when obviously when I was in college because she was abroad, mm-hmm. and um, she as she was coming down uh, started asking me if she could help with things. She was like, "Hey, like you have a nice logo, but you really don't have a brand. Can I help you with your social media?" And she's like, "Hey, can I help you with this? Can I help with that?" Um, and over time, uh, you know, we just all of a sudden were, were partners in it and we were uh, almost engaged when, when the business opened and uh, had been running the business together and having a lot of fun with it. And uh, ultimately, I uh, wouldn't have wanted to open it without her. And uh, I think that everybody needs, I think most entrepreneurs need, um, need their, uh, you know, their second or their, their partner in crime and um, you know, someone who compliments them and also, as an entrepreneur, I obviously have some, some strengths, but I, entrepreneurs come with a lot of weaknesses as well. And um, having someone who understands those and can compensate for them is pretty special. So that's that's been a really nice part of our story. So am I correct in saying that Busky Cider got its start through your participation in that Start Exclamation Peninsula program in college? Yes. And it's um, it is just our peninsula. I was just telling you if you were if anyone was writing it down or wanting to search for it, it's still it's still ongoing. And they put out a, a crop of new entrepreneurs every year. Um, yeah, so I mean, start, I was already working on this, but um, you know, winning a competition and getting the, the you know the ten thousand dollars was huge. But the business mentorship and uh, connections that I got to make through that organization were probably actually more important long term. 
Uh-huh. And um, yeah, so that was a that was a huge validation of my idea and the concept I was working on. And I love that you guys found your path together. So um, Al was able to come in and say, hey, you know, let me help you out with the marketing. Let me show you where I'm really helpful and my expertise and let's build this together. And you, you guys were able to make this a wild success. I mean, that's just just incredible story. Yeah. And then it was really exciting because I felt like I got to advance my skills beyond where I ever thought that I would. Like, um, I never thought that I would do sales ever, mm-hmm. ever at all. Hated sales. <laughs> but uh, when we launched Blue Ridge Beverage, our distributor out west, it was just it just seemed like a good opportune time to be like, OK, well, I can go out there and start talking to accounts and having them pick up the cider and things like that. And then um, it just I just did that for over a year. And now, you know, now things have started progressing where we can have other people help us out with sales a little bit. But um, it was really exciting to kind of try things that I never would have otherwise. The label that is on your watermelon rosemary, for instance, L, we were, uh, you know, limited release cans are a big part of our industry. And I was really intimidated by trying to roll out lots of different products because it was, you know, hard to conceptualize the artwork. And L said, I think if you buy me a better laptop, I could learn how to do it. Graphic design. (laughs) I was like, okay, well, I was like, she needed a new laptop anyway. So I bought her, we bought her a nice laptop and um, she's self-taught. And I think she, she has some pretty distinctive labels that are, um, definitely, I think some of the best in best in the state, and uh, not that there aren't a lot of other cool ones, but yeah, that is a that is a cool entrepreneurial piece where like I was the original entrepreneur, but to say like I can learn that, I can build, I can build a brand, I can build a can program, and it's ultimately you know during COVID, those limited release cans are really what has saved us, and if we had just had you know the RVA, which is and the tart cherry, which are the two that I've been drinking while we've been talking. Um, you know, and they're some of our best ciders, but if we only had a couple of flagships, uh, it would be a lot harder to engage people and, um, you know, bring them something different every day, like we've been able to. I got a lot of questions there. So what, <laughs> what is a good laptop for this kind of thing? She, she has a, she has a surface book too. Which it's awesome. It's great. But my sister's been talking about really wanting me to get a Mac to take things to the next level. I'm not completely convinced, no. but willing no. to be... <laughs> willing to be persuaded. I love my Mac. <laughs> That's all I'll say. Ah. <laughs> Just a little curious there. Would, I mean, the whole Apple thing is, there. we have enough apples to bust you already. On the label, what is the uh, city background there on the bottom? Yeah, so uh, that's the skyline of Richmond. Ah, very cool. Yeah, I, 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 the cans are really gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, and it uh, also made me wonder in terms of writing up a business plan for a cidery or a, a vineyard yeah. or, or whatever, how do you define your moat for your business? Like, how do you, what ways can you distinguish yourself from all the others that are out there? When you say moat, can you tell me what you mean by that? Um, something that makes other people who are starting the same kind of business, uh, it, it makes it difficult for them to encroach on your business. Sure. Well, so one of the, for someone who is now thinking about it, it's very different than it was eight years ago when I was looking at it. So when I was looking at this, there were some cideries, but very few, and almost everything I did was completely unique. Now there are a good number of cideries, you know, certainly not as saturated as beer, or wine or something like that, but there are a lot of cideries. So if you open now, you can look at the cideries you like and pick and choose pieces and then you know, hopefully come up with something of your own that's completely unique. Um, but for for me, a lot of it was no one had, almost no one had done, you know, like a scaled urban cidery um, and people were not taking kind of the hybrid craft beer uh, cider approach that we took. That was pretty unusual. and. Uh, when we were in the business planning stage, there was no one in Virginia canning cider, and now that's pretty common. Um, so we, you know, it was very easy to distinguish ourselves then. Now the question is, how do we continue to distinguish ourselves when we're one of the better established cideries in the state? And, um, you know, there's a lot of other great cideries opening, doing wonderful stuff. And um, so, you know, we're, the, the labels, the 16-ounce cans, the, re- the way we do releases, um, the way we do deliveries, um, you know, we're, and we're now jumping into a lot more barrel aging and interesting, um, interesting kind of like collaborations with other types of beverages. 
so we're you know we're it's about constantly evolving even if some of the some of the classics um you know never get old and the rva you know no matter what we put out the rva just continues to be the number one seller because mm. i opened the company to make that and i thought that was something that the market needed and it, it continues to be a pretty unique beverage despite being very simple and it's literally just sorry i haven't told you what rva is if you don't know busky it's just a semi-sweet apple cider it's virginia apples and yeast and that's it and mm. um but it's it's clean and you know it's it's the expensive way to make it to not add sugar water acid apple concentrate anything like that so we just fresh fresh apples from nelson county and ferment it and then back sweeten with the same apple juice and it doesn't sound terribly unique so when you said how do you stop people from encroaching anyone can do what i just said mm. you do need a lot of equipment you need a lot of equipment and you need a, a highly skilled team but anyone can do that but you have one of the one of the key tenants i brought to the table with this was we needed to have enough scale that we could afford to do things the right way and still have it be affordable so there are a lot of wonderful cideries out there and they tend to be fairly expensive and there are a lot of very big cideries and they tend to not be very good mm-hmm. or eh, not be very exciting they, they're they're they make good products they're professional they're good people but the larger the cidery generally the less innovation and the less um, artisanal attention to detail you're going to see interesting it's certainly the less exuberance so i don't want to insult any of the large ciders because they they have their place and they introduce people to our industry which is important i wanted to be the second biggest cider in the state and we are i didn't want to be the biggest i didn't want to be the smallest this was exactly where i wanted to be and you know the goal from day one was to be the the biggest cidery that would do certain projects and the smallest that could and that's and we've we've managed to hit that right on the head and our team has really embraced that and you know that allows us to do that allows us to um, you know have a robust delivery system and you know a wrapped vehicle doing the deliveries but also like to you know do batches that are a thousand cans and run out in a few hours that excite customers and allow us to use unique products and you know that's that's not worth it if you are a you know a company that covers 25 states it's mm. just you, know, you you can't do that it's confusing so we ended up being in a very a very fun spot in the industry mm-hmm. by 25 states he means for um distribution shipping sure. is a lot less demanding on on the side mm. Got it. Thank you for clarifying. And I have to say, like mm-hmm. when you mentioned the RVA, I'm I'm pretty picky about my basic cider, and so many of the big guys are way too sweet. And the RVA is such a pure, dry, just lovely taste and flavor that if you're a European cider person, this is the cider for you, the RVA. Yeah, and the the gluten free aspect of it is why she's Cindy. Cindy loves beer. She loves Guinness, but she can't drink it anymore because of gluten, her gluten allergies. So cider is where she's at and I don't, I typically like beer, but she, she showed me this watermelon, man. That's, that's a good <laughs> cider. Yeah. Thank you. You guys, we'll have to uh, get you some of the, the plum, plum lotus hop right now that we have out right now. So we have a, a series that is inspired by roughly the New England style IPA. So they are unfiltered, hazy um, ciders that have really bright, fresh hops, but also some other kind of fruit. Uh, in form of sweetness and that's when we have that right now and it's really nice i saw on your website you also have a honey habanero uh we have a habanero pomegranate we did a honey habanero about three years ago oh okay. and it was it was pretty and it was really cool it was a collaboration with it was Bella so spicy <laughs> i was serving behind the bar at the time and the the back bar is about at like eye level height and so anytime someone would order one it would pass like it would pass roughly at my height and it would get, it would get the fumes, I guess, would like get into my face. And I would be just kind of like silently weeping and someone's like, is something wrong? I'm like, no, I just got this one cider. And of course they want to try it. So it just perpetually for hours. <laughs> yeah. It sounds horrible. <laughs> I can't so yeah, at the, at the beginning of COVID, we had a uh, a mango habanero, and then uh, we recently, just a couple weeks ago, uh, released the pomegranate habanero. So mm. this uh, latest one is really nice because it's got that spicy, but at the same time, it's it's a nice balance of spicy and juicy. Mm. I'm not a huge spicy fan, as as you could tell. <laughs> so, uh, but I really like the pomegranate habanero. It's a nice blend. So are you also throwing in the habanero peppers and the the mush or whatever when you make that so the the habaneros are intense so we have a um 
we have a very large juicer and it's uh, like a small industrial juicer. So we will juice, um, I don't know, 50, 60 pounds of habanero, something like that. Mm. And the entire building just feels like pepper spray went off and <laughs> it's that way for days. Wow. And we wear gas masks and all that, but it's just, uh, that's, a, that's a brutal day, but it's, uh, I mean, you know, the, the fresher the ingredients can be, um, the more you get out of them generally. And that is, um, you know, the habanero, the peppers, especially, I mean, if you used a, a tincture or something like that, you're just not going to get the same effect. And the, um, but the, yeah, so then we also, the jalapeno lime is kind of on our mainstays we've had since early on. And it was one of the first pep hot ciders in the country, um, which was going back to that question earlier. It was really easy in the early days to set ourselves apart because mm-hmm. I was sitting at a taco shop near the cidery, drinking one of our ciders and I dropped a jalapeno in my, cider and it wasn't quite right so I squeezed a little bit of lime and it was perfect and uh, so I closed out my tab walked across the street and we started making jalapeno lime wow. and that's, uh, that's you know cool. so it used to, but and that was you know I got calls from all over the country like how did you do it why did you do it what does it taste like and we had the same thing happen when we we were one of the we were an early cidery to put coffee in our cider um and we collaborate with a variety of coffee growers and coffee roasters and um you know it's not the most intuitive sound combination but um you know most people don't realize that coffee is uh, basically a cherry and those fruity notes come through really nicely in cider so it is um yeah that's that's kind of a fun thing so just trying to really engross ourselves in other kinds of beverages uh at the moment we've got sherry barrels uh with cider aging in them which uh, comes back to Elle's experience living in the sherry triangle in spain Mm-hmm. And she loved sherry, and so you know they were very expensive barrels, but we had them airlifted in from Spain and picked them up at the dock. And uh, and uh, I had to ask for them for the... three for almost three years for Christmas, and finally they appeared. <laughs> they are those barrels were excessively expensive, but it's going to be a fun project. Um, are those barrels a one-time use kind of thing? A lot of barrels you you can use a second time, and you you generally get a mellower uh, aging on the second time. We have only used barrels a second time a couple of times. Uh, usually we use them once. Um, one of the cool things we do with the, the majority of our barrels, what we do is we pass them back to um, uh, Virginia, El, El, say it correctly for me. Virginia, Virginia Distillery, Distillery Company. company. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I always want to say it just slightly wrong, Virginia Distillery Company. And um, so we, um, we will, take ex bourbon barrels and age our cider in them and then when we're done we'll give it to them and then they age their whiskey in ex cider ex bourbon barrels mm. so for those using a single time is perfect um and you know cuts down basically we're just you know past the barrel just gets passed through which is awesome um whereas with the sherry barrel uh, we will most likely only use it once mm. but then we will um we, you know we'll either sell it to someone who wants to use them or we'll turn it into furniture <laughs> Furniture works too. <laughs> yeah, barrels are. Yeah, totally. I'm so impressed with your creativity and innovation process too. I mean, just that—that's something that we try and teach in my day job, and uh, it's really hard to help people think outside the box like that. So I love that you just kind of explore and, mm. and take those risks. It's, it's really amazing. Have you had any failures that you're really proud of? Yeah, one of the reasons it took so long to get open was essentially failing to get open a few times, and. <laughs> Um, looking back, I wouldn't change it, even though it was really hard. I mean, that was, uh, those were some very meager days going without, uh, basically without work for a couple of years out of college, working on it, getting this open. And, uh, yeah, it was hard and it was, it was, you know, to get everything, uh, to get everything up to the edge of the cliff and, you know, think you have a flying machine at the last second. It's, uh, not a flying machine and you're glad you didn't push it off the cliff, but mm. it's, uh, but it's a discouraging feeling sitting up there, not, you know, have, and then having to start back and, you know, and that's, that can be anything. It can be, uh, you know, having investors who are excited and a uh, staff, you know, potential staff. And then all of a sudden the bu- a building falls through or, mm. you know, everything else. And all of a sudden the capital falls through. And, um, you know, so those are, those are failures that ultimately the cidery w- w- that I would have opened those first couple of times would not have been as awesome as busky because you know you you know have to you have to learn a few ways to not make a light bulb before you make a good one i suppose um the um yeah so i mean that was those were early failures and you know and in in hindsight all of those times were um basically just i wasn't ready and that's you know i was almost ready but ultimately if if we had gone forward it wouldn't have worked as well 
Um, but at the time, you know, and, you know, speaking to any entrepreneurs who are listening, that is a, uh, it's pretty crushing in that moment. And, uh, but it, you know, if you, if you really want to do the thing you're doing, you can generally come back from not having gotten something off the ground. So <clears throat> and we've certainly had failures of like small batches and things that didn't work, but um, you know, those are not, those are not super memorable. I mean, we've got, we've got such a good team. We've got such a good team that's so hands-on with the product that, um, we really do pull off most of our batches and, um, and even if a batch is kind of weird, we have so many ciders on tap that we can tell customers, Hey, this one's weird. Taste it before you drink it. And for some people that weird taste will be just the most rapturous thing. And for some people, they'll be like, that's terrible. And it's like, well, that's why we didn't sell it to you. <laughs> so it's, yeah, that's a fun thing about the, that's the fun thing about the tasting room is, you know, we made a Saison cider and, you know, Saisons can taste a little, some Saisons can taste a little bit like, like band-aids. Um, you know, and for some people they're like, oh, this is terrible. And for some people like, this is literally the best cider I've ever had in my life. And it's like, hey, you know, palates are an incredibly, incredibly complex thing. And even if you make something that isn't all that great in a taste room environment, you can just let everyone taste it for free and say, this is what a bad cider tastes like. And this is why it happened. And, and that's one of the reasons that people really will gather around and embrace is getting to try things that are interesting and exciting and sometimes wrong. Is there a sommelier-like certification for cidery? So cider, we didn't even know what to call ourselves when we opened. Um, so the vernacular was pretty limited. Uh, there is a new program that the U.S. Cider Makers Association has put together that is, um, it's like the Cider Professionals of America certification or something like that. It, it, yeah, Certified Cider Professional, the CCP. I think it's up to level two. Um, but it's still in its infancy. Yeah. It's it's nowhere close to a Cicerone or a Somalia. Um, ultimately, having a, being a Cicerone or you know, being a Somalia is, you know, there's a lot of valuable skills, but cider is, um, cider is got almost unlimited horizons because there's so little that's established at this point. Mm. And even though it's a very old beverage, I mean, it's one of the oldest beverages, but it is, um, you know, for in the U.S., cider was the most popular beverage during colonial times, but then the feds came and cut down a lot of the apple trees during Prohibition, and we really lost, completely lost our cider tradition until maybe the mid-80s when places like Woodchuck were, you know, reopening. There were some farm farm cideries that were, you know, continuing to make stuff, but really until about 10 years ago, uh, the U.S. cider industry was extraordinarily limited except for a couple regions where, you know, we've always had a beer tradition and, um, you know, our wine, our wine wasn't famous, but we've always made wine in the U.S. Mm. Um, you know, now it is doing really well. But yeah, so it's, it's interesting with things like uh, that, where it's just like, it's less formalized. And that's been fun as an entrepreneur to get to make uh, decisions on like what we think cider is and how we think it should work. And we'll take a very different approach than, you know, some, some cideries don't want to filter their product. We think that uh, filtration can be a really beautiful part of, you know, bringing out the really clear, beautiful notes. But some ciders would say that's a hard no, and you know, some cideries uh, will choose to naturally carbonate in a bottle, and others want to serve their stuff flat. And uh, some cideries serve their cider over ice, and some don't. So it's, you know, it is it is fun that is kind of the wild west still as a beverage industry. That's really cool. Yeah, you have so many options. How big is your team right now? We are just under 20. Wow, that's that's pretty big. And uh, has it fluctuated since, so you were started in 2016, is that right? Yeah, so we started construction in 2015, opened in 2016. And how has your team fluctuated since then or grown? So when we added our second space out in Cape Charles, that was a pretty significant jump uh, in staff. And that's on the Eastern shore of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that was a, that was a significant jump, and our production team has grown a little bit, but um, we've stayed. We've been fairly consistent. I mean, we've uh, we've we've grown a little bit, but the a lot you know, a good number of our team members are on the, like the taste room and retail side. Mm-hmm. So that part has grown over the years as our taste room has become more popular. <laughs> and me, for example, when we first started, I was I was basically helping out, and then really quickly. Um, I started uh, I up my duties and Will started paying me and that was exciting for both of us. <laughs> and then uh, maybe a year in, I came on full time. So 
So, um, so that was a change. The team has grown. Yeah. So, yeah. Roles have expanded for sure. So you know, yes. that's, so yeah, I mean, it has grown, but ultimately like it is, this is not a, a cidery, a cidery that is our style of cidery is not going to be a one person team. Mm -hmm. It's a large enough manufacturing facility and a big enough operation that you're going to have a, a, a reasonable size team. And then a lot of it is buying the right technology to support that team. So we've, you know, we've, we have probably tripled our capacity since we opened. Um, but that doesn't mean you have to triple your production team. You, you know, work more on education and buy them better tools. Mm. And, but, the, but the team has, the team has grown and um, we expect that, well, depending on how, how COVID finishes and um, when things get back to normal, um, likely with our brand having really, you know, pushed beyond the Richmond and Hampton Roads markets to uh, a, a larger footprint, most likely we will be going through an expansion and, you know, the team will grow and things like that. But there's obviously a lot of uncertainty at the moment. So with new people coming in, um, I'm a new hire. I really, I love cider, but don't really know anything about it. Do you, what do you do? Do you have a training program or how do you teach people everything they need to know, especially if they're like working in the tasting room? So the best thing is just for them to go around with production and, and go through, go through and, you know, look at all the equipment and learn about it and then sit down with us. And you know, yeah, usually when we hire someone for the taste room, they've been drinking in our taste room. Mm, uh, got it. That's, I mean, our, our, our most successful Not that hires day. are people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, but our most, a lot of our really successful hires have been people who are already Busky fans, mm. and um, and you know, the, and they come to us on the right day when we you know have an opening or something like that. And um, we also hire a lot of teachers, and teachers just are naturals at this. So we have, you know, they are used to, um, you know, absorbing the information and passing it on in an engaging way for people. And um, so the teachers have been fantastic. So we have um, about half of our retail staff is teachers, a little higher than half right now. We're not a, we're not a very formal environment. I mean, one of the things that um, I shocked some of the more formal cideries early on, and they thought I was kind of the bad boy of cider or something like that, but um because we came in I was, I was asked on a it was something like a podcast and um, we were being interviewed and they said okay like what can you give us the tasting notes on your cider and i was like oh i don't do tasting notes on our <laughs> cider and everyone looks at me like i'm crazy i'm like well your palate's different and i'm not i'm not going to tell you what you're tasting you tell me what you're tasting and i'll tell you why you're tasting it i'll tell you what we do but i i don't like and and this is this is subjective and this is you maybe unique to me i'm not saying other people are wrong but i don't like to be told before I take a sip of wine that I'm going to taste hazelnuts and oak chips and barnyard. <laughs> and because, because then I'm going to taste those things. And that's, uh, you know, I want to say, huh, I taste like hazelnuts and barnyard. And they'll say, this is why you taste that. And that's much more exciting to me. Mm. Um, so we, so one of the things when we train our staff to, to, to listen to, you know, customers and what, they, what they're feeling, what they're sensing, because what you think you're tasting is not wrong. Like that is, and that's one of the, like Elle has a, Elle has a fascinating palate. She's probably got the, she's probably got one of the most inter interesting palates on the team, but she'll taste something and be like, I taste pickles. And no one else in the entire world is going to taste pickles, but she's also not wrong. And that does, that, and that corresponds to something that happened during fermentation. Hmm. And it's important to know. And, you know, she also tasted pencils at one point and it turned out that some draft equipment had been installed incorrectly and the, the lines were designed for beer, not for cider, and there was starting to be a little bit of a breakdown in the lines, and no one else tasted it, but when we looked it up, like, what does it mean that she's tasting this? And it's like, huh, it, it could be that there is the wrong kind of line installed in our in this draft system, and it was, which is kind of cool. So ultimately, telling people they're wrong on what they're tasting is just absolutely the wrong way to approach beverages. And so Elle is kind of like a superhero in that, too, that she can kind of tell you <laughs> where the issues are. <laughs> Sure. Yes, it's my responsibility. And, I mean, and, and, and everyone, and everyone on the team, everyone on the team has a unique palate yeah. that is valuable. I mean, that is, and you know, I mean, though there will be times where you know some part-time taste room hand will be like, "Hey, we need to bring this person in because they just like have a palate that connects with what people are looking for in a pina colada cider." Mm. And you know, we'll have we'll ask them to come in and give us a thought because you know there's days where there's days where. L isn't the most useful person to have because she doesn't like spicy stuff. Mm. Well, that's, you know, that's not who we're shooting for when we make a jalapeno lime cider. <laughs> you know, we still need L to do the label, but 
um, you know, and similarly, like I tend to like the dry, I tend to like the drier ciders the most, and you know that's not what everyone likes, and sweet ciders are important if they're made well. But it's, yeah, it's 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 fun to just that everyone on the team gets to be part of the creative process. I'm curious where you guys get your apples. Do you own your own orchard? Uh, so we get our apples from um, Silver Creek and Siemens Orchard in Nelson County. So all of our apples come from Virginia. Um, we uh, we see it as a brand statement um, since we're a part of Virginia and uh, Virginia apples. They're they're so delicious. They're they're so amazing, um, especially when you start talking about like heirloom heritage varieties. Um, we have some of the best in the country. Um, possibly the world. And uh, so we're really fortunate to live in such a good apple state. Mm, yeah, totally. Great. We've, but we, we have some land in uh, Cumberland, Virginia. Do you guys know where that is? It's pretty close to Farmville. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. And uh, we've tried to grow apple trees oh down there and we just can't, <laughs> we can't get we've anything We've planted over a hundred variety of trees and we have like four. <laughs> is it, is it on like rolling hills or is it flat? Uh, parts of it are flat. A lot of it is a little bit rolling. Because mm, apple trees, you you tend to see apple trees as you head up into like the foothills, oh. heading into the mountains, because the um, <clears throat> being on the side of a hill is uh, helps with just like the quality of air and mm. pests and uh, kind of like how grapes like um, like drier environments. Apple trees also tend to be you know in that a little bit what seems to be a harsher element, which is kind of surprising mm. um, when you get up like on the side of a mountain. So also the apples over time, you know, were hybridized and were grown to grow in the places where people wanted to grow them. And nobody wants to grow wheat on the side of a mountain. Um, there's also an element of, you know, the apples that grew well in those environments and were resistant to pests were going to continue to be grown. And apple trees that needed to be grown in a wheat field were probably not. But virtually all apples are grown um, on, uh, at a point where there's some elevation change mm. and, and a higher elevation generally. Um, where is Melton County? What's near there? So Char Charlottesville is um, oh, down there, okay. where pe most people think. With Nelson County, so that's where you get oh, all the breweries up on the. But yes, Nelson County. Not but ours is actually our. But Nelson County is kind of from like Charlottesville to Lynchburg almost, and our our orchard is closer to Lynchburg, hmm. which is not where everyone's thinking with Nelson County. Oh. And then we, you asked if we owned it or if we work. So we work with an orchard, but we by law and because we want to be invested, um, we have to lease uh, or own a substantial portion to be a farm winery. So we have 50 acres that we lease and, and most of our apples come from that. Interesting. Wow. That's, that's really And we also recently have started also partnering with an orchard in Winchester, Virginia. Um, uh -huh for certain apples that we're looking for because um, the, the glaze the glaze family is just a great family and cider and the you know the young guys that are taking up the mantle for the family are doing some really cool stuff and um, so we've been you know we've we've started taking some juice from them but the lion's share is still from nelson county and likely will continue to be so you guys like have so much going on i mean this business seems to be your whole world do you, how do you balance your energy between your professional and personal lives do we try to balance our lives between <laughs> personal and professional? We try. We try. We're not very good at it. Um, well, before COVID, we would just work really hard and then take a vacation. But now that's not, you know, that's that's not really a possibility to go travel somewhere fun. Um, so, so, uh, I don't know. It's really tough when you when you work together and you live together. And, um, you know, before you have kids or hit that stage of life, um, it is kind of everything into the business. But we kind of like that because it's what we enjoy. I get to design the labels. Uh, who knew you could sell art by the thousands? And, um, you know, he loves cider and loves running a business. And so we, it's kind of like our workplace and our hobby. So it's not as bad as you think. Uh, so at the moment we're feeling a little bit negative about it because just like everyone in the world, I mean, we're cooped up with COVID and I mean, I've had a very different COVID experience that I've been home less than I've ever been home because I'm on the road doing deliveries constantly. Yeah. And so for me, it was the, like the weirdness of being on the road alone in Northern Virginia with everything shut down and like eating cans of soup behind the wheel and, you know, and being the only person staying in a huge hotel and just like weird experiences like that, whereas 
very post-apocalyptic feeling. And for L, it was not leaving the house for a couple of months. Hmm. So we've yeah, we've had an interesting time, but we I mean we are in a I think entrepreneurship can be fairly all encompassing, but we we do some of the things we do for work are also things people do for fun. So going to a restaurant and having a cider is for most people that's a fun thing to do after work. For that is a work thing for us, but you know we also as a couple that runs a business get to do it together, which is yeah we get to go on even though it's, there is an element of work to it, we also get to go on more dates than most couples do. And that's, uh, yeah, that's fun. We'll talk a little bit more about what your thought process was behind your, I, I'll call it a pivot. I, I think that's what you were doing um, in actually physically delivering cider to people. And that's when sure. Cindy told me that this guy who runs a cidery in Richmond is hand delivering cider to our front doorstep. I was kind of amazed by that. <laughs> what, what was going through your head um, in doing that? Yeah, so I mean, you know, Elle talked about it a little bit earlier, but we we thought we were closing down early because we were trying to be responsible. And we thought we saw the writing on the wall. So when we closed down on March 16th, we thought we, we thought we'd made a very difficult decision. We're closing down very early. Turned out that everything was closed a few days later. But we, you know, we made that call and thought we were doing it early. And you know, I mean, that's a that's a terrifying moment to shut everything down as an entrepreneur mm. and or as anyone. Um, and I just, you know, I remember I was, yeah, I was, I literally went up not not on the roof like in a scary way but we have a a pleasant uh roof on top of our condo i went up there and honestly just cry, cried cried for a little bit and it was like all right like we're gonna have to we're gonna have to do something and uh, so my younger brother who does um like e-commerce and stuff like that um you know we got on the phone with him and he was like hey like you say you can do this delivery thing he's like you know you can just you can just do it halfway and have people call in orders and stuff. He's like, or we can just, you know, take down your website and lose everything that's on there. And he's like, and we can pull an all nighter basically and have a website up tomorrow and you can be delivering. And, uh, you know, which is, it's weird. Cause it's like, Oh, well, we've worked for years on this website. We have all of our information, our stories on here. And, you know, we didn't, <clears throat> none of us are web developers and we didn't have time to do it. So it was just kind of a slash and burn. So we, we tore it down and we started delivering basically two days later. And, um, uh, Northern Virginia, and the, you know, the reason I'm doing it was, um, basically, uh, you know, we had, we had up to six drivers at a time delivering across the state at the peak when everything was completely shut down. But Northern Virginia was by far the roughest route. And um, I just didn't feel comfortable putting someone on the road for three days in a you know, straight staying in hotels with the uncertainty of like, where are you staying? How are you getting food? Things like that. So I started doing it and ultimately like it was, you know, it's turned into a nice routine and we're still, we still have other team members doing deliveries, other areas, but I've been, I've ended up handling the Northern Virginia route and continuing to, and I'm up there every weekend. So I've been up there every weekend since COVID started. It's, well, not, not quite. We, we delivered there, I guess, a month in for the first time. But yeah, I mean, ultimately one of the big things is like when the world is falling apart and changing as an entrepreneur, it's, I think it's very important to get to talk to people and, uh, and listen to what they're looking for. And I mean, a lot of, the, a lot of the big business decisions we've made during this is, have happened basically at the door talking to customers. Huh. Um, and it's, I mean, I think I have, I have more perspective on, you know, what is happening in the world right now in Virginia than a lot of people would because I'm out in the middle of it and I'm seeing the breakage points and I'm seeing like some shockingly strong humanity and also some shocking hatred and anger and, mm. um, you know, boredom that is just beyond belief and also like people making the most of it and it's uh, it's been interesting but also like you know our cidery is you know very much part of it and I've I've enjoyed those relationships and also it was a pretty easy decision honestly to just pivot and find a new way to reach people and fortunately you know we were able to be flexible and do that yeah I mean I I see it as a genius move and I uh I'm not a business guy, but to me, that's like genius. You're, you're going to meet your customers face to face in Northern Virginia. You're driving all the way up from Virginia. You're doing the really hard, uh, you're grinding it out, trying to keep the company alive. I'm, I was just kind of blown away. I, I've never seen you in person. I've never seen your truck or anything because <laughs> I've always been in my basement <laughs> doing my own grinding. Uh, what, what kind of truck do you drive? Like how many, how many people do you have to deliver to on the weekends? Yeah, so numbers have been coming down as things have been reopening. Um, so now it is, I mean, originally, I mean, the first weekend was shocking because, you know, L was launching it and 
uh, from Northern Virginia. And she was like, Northern Virginia is going to overwhelm you. And I was like, yeah, bring it on. Like, let's, uh, let's see, let's see what can happen. I'll make it happen. So first weekend we got crushed. We did, uh, I think 160 deliveries. It was all, and it was all the way from Arlington out to Winchester down to Fredericksburg. And he was like, bring God. it on. It's like, I was like, okay. So I, I did, uh, I did about, a, we did about 160 deliveries and, it was, you know, three 18 hour days in a row. And I was dropping cider off at 1030 at night to people's houses, which was, uh, people were very nice about that. But, um, but yeah, so that was, that was insane. And then it settled in into like 50 to 60 order range for most of COVID. And now it's down in the like 20 range, which is, you know, like this was the second time I've been back on a Friday night. Um, because I, I, it always goes into the second day. And uh, so this last weekend was a little bit a little bit easier, which was, um, you know, it was actually a really nice, nice route. And I got to spend a little extra time with customers and hear their stories and what they're enjoying and what they want to see afterwards. And, you know, it's been fun to, uh, I would say probably almost the majority of my regular orders up in Northern Virginia have actually visited our tasting room already since we reopened, mm. which is, you know, the life cycle of a customer in that relationship. I mean, that is a, that shows the real value. I mean, we did, you know, to keep our whole team on, to keep our whole team on, we had to, you know, cast a pretty wide net and we had to hustle. But ultimately if it was, you know, if it was just, um, you know, a few thousand orders and then it was gone, like, was it worth the effort? Well, because it's turned into relationships and because people are coming down and visiting and because we're on this podcast and because, um, you know, we've got hundreds of new friends and, you know, thousands and thousands of new emails of people who are interested. That is, that is where we're creating a lot of value, even if it's still a very hard time as a business. So do you have the money right now? Are you going to survive? Yeah, we'll survive. I mean, it's been, it's been brutal, but, um, we're, we're doing, we're doing fine. I mean, our team, if our team had not stepped up the way they did, uh, this would have been, it would have been unbelievably tough. And, uh, instead our, you know, our team all just, you know, jumped in and did exactly what they needed to do and showed a lot of creativity and hustle. And, um, yeah, we're doing well. I mean, we're, you know, we, we are, we are losing money and, you know, bleeding, but it's controlled bleed. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know when the world will come back to some level of normalcy, but our brand is a lot bigger than it was. And there's, you know, we've learned a lot and built competencies and, uh, we'll be a better company than we were going into it, coming out of it, even if, uh, even if we're a little hungry at the moment. Are are people investing in, are you, do you have investors in your company? And, and if so, how much of the company are you able to hold on to? Yeah, I I can't answer that specifically, but I have I do have over half of the company pers- personally. Good. And um, but I have I have a variety of investors, and um, you know I, I I took a little bit of a people tell me this is a little bit of a unique approach to raising capital, but um, I had a lot of interest from investors and people who wanted to put capital in, and then ultimately turned down a lot more capital than I accepted because I really wanted. I really wanted there to be a relationship with everyone who's an investor. And so we've got a really, really unique, very talented group of um, non-professional investors who uh, decided they want to be part of this. And uh, generally when we bring on capital, it's more because we want someone to be part of this than that we're actually trying to do a specific project. Um, and that's, yeah, there are specific projects. There's always projects, but um, you know, from time to time, there'll be someone who just brings a wealth of knowledge uh, in an area and some capital. And that's, um, that's been a very successful approach. And as an entrepreneur, having your investors be a resource instead of a, um, logistical nightmare or, you know, someone being challenging you or making you question your decisions. I mean, calling my investors at the beginning of this and being like, Hey, I'm shutting the taste room down early. Like this is a uh, controversial decision, but this is a decision I'm making. And like, you know, every one of them was like, you know, do it the right way. And, and this is our moment. Like, let's, let's roll this to this right way. And I think we can come out of this strong. Yeah. It's, it's good to have that support. And I don't think everyone, I don't think everyone necessarily has that from their board of directors or investors. Where do you guys want to be in 10 years? 10 years, man. That's, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> people used to say like two years and like, Oh, you know, add another 10,000 barrels or something. <laughs> uh, let's see 10 years. Um, We'll probably have kids by then, and uh, obviously we'll still be living in Richmond because this is our home base. We're um, we're at a pretty. We're probably going to double our size um, after COVID once things settle down a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I'm not necessarily sure we want to get bigger than that. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is 
that allows us to support our distributors around the state and a couple of distributors other places and uh you know try continue to grow batches that are successful but also never you know, have to walk away from the fun creative small stuff um i mean one of the things you're seeing in craft alcohol is that hyper local has driven so much of the success lately and the larger brands tend to have less connection to their customers and um, like you're pointing out that it's cool you know it's great that i've been able to be up in northern virginia making that connection well i will never do that in idaho <laughs> and so why would i so why would i want to send my cider there I mean, it's, yeah. and that's, and nothing against Idaho. I just, I can't, I can't drive the product there and go door to door. Yeah. And you lose, you lose the, you lose the magic sometimes as founders age and their brand becomes too wide. Mm. And that is something that we obviously, that's something we will have to wrestle with trying to avoid. And a lot of the great early brands get acquired because the thing that drove them early was founders and core employees, you know, building relationships in their community and making people believe in it. And the farther away they got from it and the older they got, the more that faded. And that's something that everyone in our industry has to avoid. We were the youngest cidery owners in the country until our former cider maker opened a, an awesome cidery uh, elsewhere. So, you know, we've, we have the nice, we have the, we're lucky to be in a position where we have some runway before we have to make some of those decisions. Cause you know, we're only 30, which is, uh, you know, it's not, not as young as we were when we opened it, but still, uh, <laughs> still pretty young relative to the industry. Um, yeah, so I mean, 10 years from now we'll be 40. And uh, we'll be still still running this, and uh, hopefully, um, you know, we'd like to open a like a barrel house at some point that is a place where we can, you know, aid, <clears throat> focus on aging and stuff. And um, L's got some unique experience uh, from Spain in cider that we'd like to introduce more of into into our cider. So you know, a few different representations, but yeah, we like what we do, and uh, I mean, I, I expect we'll still be doing this in ten years, and uh, it'll it'll probably change a lot. And yeah, we won't be we won't be the youngest cider owners in the country in ten years, by any means, and that'll be good because there'll be you know a new a new crop of young entrepreneurs opening stuff, and uh, you know, I mean, there's a good chance we'll end up partnering with some of them. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I don't know. Ten years—that's a tough one. That's a it's a long time. We're curious if you have any books that you would recommend to anyone for whatever. What what's one of your favorite books that you would recommend? I read a ton of books. So I'm trying to think of like the one that just like shatters everything uh, for our industry. I mean, the, um, I, I can't remember the name of it, but the biography on Sam Caligiani from Dogfish Head is, mm. is a really, a really useful book on thinking about how craft beer got its kind of its, uh, like underground skateboard mentality, but also like turned into a real business. That's a, that's a really useful one for anyone trying to get into the industry. Cool. And, thank you. Um, that's, that's, I can't remember the name of it, but it's, it's easy to find. Um, Purple Elephant is a really good marketing book. Oh, I that is. I read that one a few years back. Yeah. Um, I read a ton of books, but I, uh, they're not, not a ton coming to mind. I'll follow up with an email if I think of a few. Okay. Yeah, we'll put you on the spot. Um, <laughs> Elle, do you have any books you would recommend? Gosh, you know, I have, I've spent COVID just kind of, uh, kind of working wholly on Busky, so I haven't really been focusing on books lately. Um, I, if, if I read books, I tend to end up um, reading, uh, like, uh, lately I was, um, uh, let's see, lately I was perusing, so um, just uh, some of my old textbooks from Spain. Mm. Um, I, I've always really enjoyed, uh, books that are in different languages to kind of, Mm. um, help you learn about the way that the syntax works in different languages and things like that. So not necessarily anything that's appropriate for cider, but linguistics. Absolutely. (laughs) I thought, so I read a book called the five presidents last week. Um, and it was a really interesting book. I've never read such a thoughtful analysis of leaders from a, kind of a faceless subordinate, but it was, or something like that. But um, he was a secret service agent who was a secret service agent for five presidents and was the, he was, he's recognizable for being the one that pulled Jackie Kennedy back into the car. But that was, that was a really interesting thing as a leader to read his take on these personalities and these leadership traits. And uh, cause that's one of the, you know, being a very young founder, it also, you know, one of the biggest challenges is like, you know, how to be a mature leader when you haven't worked in a lot of mature workplaces and mm-hmm. when you're younger than some of your employees or when you don't have the life experience. 
things like that. So I thought that was a very interesting book. It's not industry specific, but definitely, uh, definitely worth a read if you've got time for it. Wow. Yeah, definitely. That's a, well, leadership is a huge aspect of everything that you're doing. So I, I love that. That's a great suggestion. Cool. Wow. Well, guys, we're over an hour and it's been a true pleasure to talk to you guys. I'm, I'm definitely inspired. Um, listening to how you got how you got started and how you're trying to stay alive and the grit that you're showing and I'm truly impressed that you're you're doing person to person deliveries that just <laughs> continues to blow my mind.